Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. An evil old house, the kind some people call haunted, is like an undiscovered country waiting to be explored. Hill House had stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House. And whatever walked there, walked alone. Another ominous beginning to another ominous episode of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined this afternoon in the studio by none other than J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to all the great stars and friend to Filmically Perfect. J. Todd, welcome. Hello, Nikki Dakota. <laughs> also joining us via the magic of phone lines from Culpeper, Virginia, it is the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress and uh, all keeper of all information of film. We call him friend and George Willeman. George, welcome. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's me. We have gathered together today to celebrate in its perfectness the film called The Haunting. And uh, We're going to do a G-rated movie this week. <laughs> you know, we did Carrie, and then we did um, Halloween, and those are pretty rough movies for the whole family to watch. Unless I'll the say. whole family has grown up watching that movie because they've been around for quite a while. But this is more of a, uh, a G-rated movie directed by one Robert Wise in 1963. Correct, George? That is correct, 1963. In glorious black and white. So why would they do black and white at that late state, I guess, for the uh, the dramatic effect? Probably one was for dramatic effect. And actually, if you look at the films made around uh, at that time, black and white was still quite prevalent in sort of uh, basic filmmaking. I mean, uh, Dr. Strangelove is black and white and the apartment's black and white and Studio still had a pretty good size output. They they make you know I don't know at that time they could possibly have been making thirty films a year instead of sixty like they did twenty years before, but the budgetary constraints were always the color pictures got the best money uh, right. in the early sixties and then by nineteen sixty four or sixty five, then it was pretty cost efficient to do a color movie by then by uh, sixty five sixty six I don't know somewhere around. There. I would say with the continued development of the single strip color film and you know the reduction in cost of making color films, color became more popular. Plus, the onslaught of television, I think, kind of forced them into doing more color films as well. And the color, as you'll notice, on a lot of the made-for-TV movies made in that era is fading. And uh, it's not the usual brilliance of Technicolor, which is very dense color temperatures like reds, like in The Wizard of Oz. And our man at the Library of Congress, George Willeman, can tell us why you see old prints of movies in color and they're starting to fade. Right, George? Well, yeah, because it all has to do with the dyes that were used in the different color processes, whereas uh, uh, Technicolor, IB Technicolor, used mineral dyes, uh, such as uh, are used in like pictures and books and posters and lithographs. The, uh, the later, like Eastman Color, used vegetable dyes, which were, were very unstable. Uh, they've gotten a little better at it. Uh, the, the more recent films, I guess in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, are quite hardier and will last quite a bit longer than the earlier color films. 
Alas, before we tread much further down this path, it is important to note that these films that are deemed perfect by the film guys are uh, the ones that have passed a very stringent test indeed, and in fact, have adhered to uh, very specific parameters. And uh, gentlemen, those are your rules. We have rules. Our perfect movies create the world they exist in. And they totally sustain that world. And regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment value. And they are never placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. Excuse me. Each film is perfect by its own scale. And on that note, uh, let's uh, consider for just a moment. Uh, so this is, did you say 1963? I'm sorry, my, my, my brain has let loose of that fact already. Yes. Yes, 63. So, uh, uh, horror film as a genre, very much established at this point, and, uh, and yet uh, it is embarked upon to make this movie The Haunting that's based on a novel. If you could, George, give us a little walkthrough of, of the action. Very interesting setup. Yeah, well, the very basic story of the film uh, surrounds this house, and the house actually becomes the main character of the film. And the house is called Hill House, and Hill House has a history of death and, and sadness and terror surrounding it, and it, it piques the interest of this parapsychologist who comes to the house, and he's written to a group of people who've all had paranormal experiences to come and try to, to give some credence to the different stories and, and experiences that people have had at Hill House. Uh, only two of the people that he uh, wrote to show up. One is a rather mousy woman named Eleanor, played by Julie Harris, and the other is this rather mysterious woman black, uh, named Theodora, just Theodora, as she says, played by Claire Bloom. Uh, the third member of the party is the uh, nephew of the owner of the house, whose name is Luke Sanderson, who's played by Russ Tamblin, who amazingly does not dance in this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, but he frolics about on that staircase and uh, <laughs> does a tough guy routine, you know. I think, I think Robert Wise really liked Russ Tamblin as an actor because he appears in a couple of his movies, doesn't he? I believe so. Yeah, but he's definitely a different character in this. But, yeah, well, yeah, so he comes from a musical uh, well, background. Well, wasn't isn't Tamblin in West Side in Story? West Side Story, right? Yeah. Oh, he's still around too. His his kids still is. I mean, uh, yeah. people who have seen him in um, Twin Peaks playing Doctor Jacoby, and and I think he was running some sort of health food juice bar or something. <laughs> <laughs> he's in a lot know, of movies. Russ Tamblin was. Of stuff out there. Yeah. But uh, so anyways, the four of them are basically locked up in this house, and the only other contact they have is with the sort of uh, surly uh, housekeeper and her husband, the Dudleys. And uh, so as they, they begin to sort of explore this house, things begin happening to them. They begin to hear noises and poundings on the walls and things trying to get in the rooms and strange voices and and it slowly begins to affect especially Eleanor, and a lot of it seems to be centered around her um, and the, the different sort of... because she's the star. Yeah, between the emotions. <laughs> that would be why. The, yeah, the ghost the is attracted to her because she's a star. Yeah. <laughs> the sort of emotional baggage between the characters begins to come out uh, until the end, near the end where they decide they have to send Eleanor away uh, for her own good, but by that time the house doesn't want her to leave, or so we think. I'm not going to give it anything else. There you go. <laughs> there it is, in a nutshell. So a house that is personified and that even, they make, the, they make uh, several attempts to, and maybe you could address this, Jay Todd, um, show angles of the house where it uh, actually of, appears to have a face. They do a lot of 
<laughs> yeah, that's always interpreted in one of those old houses. In fact, the movie we did a couple weeks ago, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it looks like they're doing this house. I mean, that house, this you know, the house thing in movies has been done a million times. Uh, but when they drive up, they just, you know, it's a big, big anticipation, and then they cut to the house and it's in day for night and it's just omnipresent. <laughs> and she drives up in her little, they, they, they must have picked the most innocuous car for her to drive in. Yeah, and what was I that? I think it's a Ford Anglia. Yeah. <laughs> the film was actually, although it's supposed to take place somewhere in New England, the, the whole film was actually shot in Old England. Yeah, it looks very European. In fact, when they said Boston, I thought, man, these people, they don't sound like Boston people to me here, you know. Especially. No, in fact, the, the gatekeeper is this actor named Valentine <laughs> Dial. Yeah, what was he? And he's got this most bizarre kind of weird New England accent. You know. It's almost yeah, like a little bit Irish pocket, in there, too. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing when they but show he, I'm sorry, he's George. In a couple really good, he's in a couple really good English horror films. Uh, there's one called City of the Dead where he plays a warlock where he's really quite menacing so he was kind of a plum for them to get you know a lot of times in this movie she gets there and there's nobody there and they you know and the, and the maid goes around expelling the virtues of why she's not going to be there because the food's going to be there and then nobody leaves here because of the dark and and pretty soon they just, just they just meld that into the background as she just anim- anatomically just kind of walks around and explains that she's not going to they don't ignore they don't pay any more attention to her but an amazing thing starts happening. This big house, all of a sudden, these people just reappear. I mean, they, they've all arrived somehow getting into this house, and they're in all these rooms. And, and through the miracle, because Robert Wise was a cutter, uh, they all just am- amazingly show up. And every room they go into is decorated quite different, and, and all of a sudden, you have different people there. Uh, and they're all ready for the classic, let's all go into the haunted house thing and figure out who's the ghost. And uh, my favorite part of the movie is these two catty girls. I just think that they're – I just love it. And uh, there's one pretty good line in here where she gets all bent out of shape on what she's wearing, you know, and, and the other girl gives her a hard time. And then the man, of course, steps in, and, and he says, um, well, you know, she's just doing that to get a rise out of you so you won't be scared, you know. And oh. it's, it's such a catty fight, too. I thought, this is, they're hopeless now. They're not going to find this ghost if this is the way the guy views these two women fighting in this movie. So this is uh, more of a psychological drama, wouldn't you say? I mean, to say like a psychological horror. There's not a lot yeah. of... Uh... It, is, it is very much, and it's interesting in that I, I've seen this movie quite a few times, and I'd never read the book. It's based on a book by Shirley Jackson, who is probably best known for her short story, The Lottery. And uh, the book she wrote is called The Haunting of Hill House, duh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've been reading that lately, and, and yes, the book is very much more about the psychological makeup of Eleanor than anything else in the book. It's all about her and how she reacts to the house. And the, the movie is kind of like that way, too. I mean, they had to kind of open it up a bit for the other characters. Yeah, you know, she's running away from the fact that her mother died, and what does she do? She wants to go to Hill House. <laughs> Some vacation, huh? Well, I think she wants to go there because it's the first time in her life that she's actually been wanted. For something, that's uh-huh. what I kind of get out of it. That you know, she's she spent all of her time as a caretaker for her mother, while her sister, whom you also meet in the story, kind of you know has her own family and what whatnot. And so now Eleanor finally has the chance to do something and to do something of her own, which is why any time they even suggest that she maybe she should leave, she freaks out because this is her thing. This is what she's meant to do. And little does she know, it is what she's meant to do. But she's not going to really like the outcome of it. 
You're listening to Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. We're talking about the 1963 horror. I was almost say thriller, but it's not. It's a horror drama, isn't it? The Haunting. Well, you're thrilled by it, aren't you, Nikki? <laughs> I have to say, I uh, yeah, I found it to be a strange watch. A very <laughs> well, strange I, I will, watch. I will be the, one of the first to admit it is not your average horror film. And for our audiences today who are, who are so much into you know, sort of the, the really vitriolic horror film, the, the, the thaws and the... You know, Where everything's more, shown. The more yeah. clinical horror films. This one can be kind of a, a shock to the system because it's very, very slow. I'll say. You know, it, and it, like I said, I know that, it, that you know, that you, you, both you and JT, I know, had a hard time watching it, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, I know that there's... As there thick-skulled as we are. <laughs> well, for one thing, one thing you have to consider, I mean, people have to consider when they listen to Filmically Perfect, um... We do take into considerations that that nowadays films are paced much differently than they used to be. Audiences are they expect things to be handed and delivered to them much more quickly nowadays. Tasty and, little regular and bites. And they want you to get there faster. And there, a lot of the uh, fiber of these pictures nowadays have been stripped out of them simply because the audiences cannot watch slow, methodic movies. Right. Now, when this movie was made in 1963, I'm sure in the proper setting in, in a good theater – that it was probably pretty riveting. Right, and, and that's, that's what my contention has always been in this movie. If, if it were possible to see this in a, on a big, big screen in a completely dark theater with like 700 other quaking souls around you. Well, you're, dealing, mean, you're dealing with a master director yeah. who knows how to time things impeccably, and it's just not for people who don't want to sit down to a slow movie. Uh, you might as well just forget it. But if you're interested in just you know grabbing you know a bunch of food and sitting on your couch and watching this movie and really watching it. Now, as we explained, uh, watching you know all the incredible point of view shots where he's taking you into the point of view of the house, where the house, the house becomes this character throughout the movie. And you can't really sit there and talk on the phone and do your nails and stuff like this movie. You have to watch it. Some movies demand a little bit of discipline, and this is one of those movies. Right. This is, unfortunately, this is not a casually viewable movie. It really isn't. Well, it's also on TCM to... if you want to watch it. It's on Halloween. It's on Halloween night, you say? Six o'clock. Well, see, on they Turner obviously Classic movies. rate it highly. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, they don't really care for the film guys because they have their essentials, but they don't have perfect <laughs> well, movie well, the, other, the other thing is that, that Turner owns the haunting. Oh, oh well, see. that might play in. Now, if anybody could tell you about slow-paced films and why you should watch them, it's Turner Broadcasting Network because, because if you can't get through one of those movies without watching those commercials, I'm telling you, man, Turner has a lot of commercials. No, 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 Turner Classic Movies, right, George? Turner yeah, Broadcasting. No, they don't, they don't interrupt the movies for commercials. Okay. Oh, that's fancy. You're it's on of, Turner Classic Movies, not Turner Broadcast. You're thinking of AMC. You're talking about American Movie yeah. Classic. We're getting all of our classic mu- movies uh, uh, confused, except this one, The Haunting, uh, from 1963, which is judged by all and uh, also uh, certain powers that be to be uh, a perfect movie in every way. Let's talk a little bit, Jay Todd, about the uh, the cinema cinematographic. What's the well, word you're, I'm you're, looking so, for there? <laughs> well, the form in this picture is purely uh, from an editor's perspective, because Robert Wise was an editor. And some of the wonderful things that Robert Wise, he, we've already done one of his movies, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Another slow-paced movie, you know, which which, un, un, it, it just kind of folds out, you know, uh, yeah, tiny boxes. Fact, you just keep pulling them out, right? And if you think about it, like the, on the day there stood still, the whole the whole episode of the title takes about 
five minutes out of an hour and a half film. There, you know, there's like there's all this build up to it, and then there's all this reaction to it afterwards. He also Robert Wise also cut Citizen Kane. He was the editor on right. that movie. Another slow movie. <laughs> uh, well, that's right. <laughs> well worth the watch, but a slow plodding journey. But these are these are very these, these movies are full of fiber, you know, a cinematic fiber. So <laughs> You mean like right. the stuff that's good for you? That's right. <laughs> that's it. Robert Wise was too regular. Always remember that. <laughs> Keep you Robert Wise regular. <laughs> <laughs> but you know they demand well, a certain amount of discipline go. you know you can't not everybody can operate heavy machinery uh not everybody can watch these movies unless they're you know into watching movies and and like i said before we here at filmically perfect try to bring in the whole breadth of movies and that includes slow paced movies but we'll try to keep our show from being fibrous slow paced nothing movie. but fiber in this picture so that's interesting. Yeah. I did not realize that he actually was the same fellow who had done The Day the Earth Stood Still, which oh, yeah. then makes some sense, yeah. He's done a lot of other movies, too. He's, he's, and, and think about that. Uh, if you do look at him up on the Internet Movie Database under Robert Wise, you're going to see a man who's done a lot of different kind of movies. So here he is. He's doing his take on a horror film, and it's it's very theatrical, uh, but it is. It's, it's, it's supposed to be theatrical. Um, right, and, and two of his first films, uh, as a, a first full-fledged directed films, were horror films. Uh, he did the well, body snatcher and the curse of. The he castle. did the body snatcher. It's not invasion of the body snatcher. Oh, okay. No, not invasion of the body snatcher. This is the, the body snatcher is based on a Robert Louis Stevenson story. It's one of the really great little Val Luton uh, horror films from the '40s, which we should do something about later on because that's a really amazing series. Stick around, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking. We're talking about <laughs> slow moving movies. <laughs> now, what's really amazing is you know you know what film Robert Wise did right after this one? What? The Sound of Music. Get out! N- not go, not a slow paced plotting movie. A very but, lovely, but consistently is, paced. Consistently paced. Now, this that's movie is this. The pacing in this movie is is really locked down. Like all everything that Robert Wise does, because he was a cutter. And back in the old days, when you had to hold film and cut it, you know, you had to build this metronome of pacing in your hands. Uh, and, and and the sound of music is immaculately play, paced. Uh, all his movies are just wonderfully paced, including this movie. It's slow, but it's paced. It's rock solid, the pacing yeah. in this picture. We're talking now, about The Haunting, 1963. Uh, horror drama is what I'm going to call it. Do you, can you agree with that, George? Yep, that yeah. sounds good to me. And uh, do, do you know, George, how uh, uh, the director's attention was brought to the book? How did, it, how did, how did he recognize that this is worth uh, bringing to the screen? It, it had been a really popular book when it came out, and from what I gather, he had... He needed to do a project. He was under contract to do a project, and um, and this this uh, this book had come to his attention, I think, through a review that he'd read, um, and he thought it would be a real good, I mean, a really good uh, attempt for him to try and do this. It didn't give him a whole lot of money to do it, so but he uh, he. Did it in England just to, to help, actually to help pay for it. Forgive my ignorance, but the actor's not particularly, uh, you know, the, the stratospheric A-list, although did a fantastic job, but not necessarily the big name, so maybe that was a... Uh... Well, Julie Harris is pretty too. big I mean, at the they're time. They're all really, you know, really solid actors. The the, the actor who plays uh, the doc, Dr. Markaway, I, this is the only thing I've seen him in. I don't know him from anything else. 
But, well, uh, Julie Harris, she was at the top of her game. She was doing yep. Giant a little bit before this. I think mm -hmm. Giant was in 1961. I'm not sure about that, but uh, right. and, um, she did quite a bit of stuff. Julie Harris, she was she was heavy duty at that time. Right, and Claire Bloom, of course, had been doing a lot and still is doing a lot of stuff. And did somebody in this room say catty lesbians? <laughs> I hadn't actually said that yet. George, <laughs> did I hear you thinking <laughs> catty lesbians? Well, one, one of the things that's interesting about the book is in the book, and then Shirley Jackson, of course, is one of our greatest authors, and she's really good with characters, is she slowly begins to bring out that, that, that Theodora uh, is, is a lesbian. And she does it very delicately. Now, she does it. It's never you heard said. It, you heard it here first, then, folks. Filmically perfect. In the book than they could in the film. Because it's still <laughs> the early 60s, and there's still the, the, the entrails of the, of the production code are still there. So with, with the film, they had to be even a little more delicate, tread a little more lightly. And here's a little. On Turner Classic wild. Movies, October 31st at 6 o'clock, you can see the Caddy Lesbie scene you're going to hear right now. Here you are. Okay, Isalda. Tristan wants you inside. Leave me alone. Stop trying to be the center of attention, Nell. Come inside. You revolt me. Well, can't you take a joke? I didn't know you were serious about Marquette. Of course you did. Okay. But he shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. Get away with what? You're making a fool of yourself over him. Suppose I'm not, though. You'd mind terribly if you turned out to be wrong for once, wouldn't you? Oh, you poor, stupid innocent. I'd rather be innocent than like you. Meaning what? Now who's being stupid and innocent? You know perfectly well what I mean. Is this another of your crazy hallucinations? I'm not crazy. Crazy as a loon. You really expect me to believe you're sane and the rest of the world is mad? Well, why not? The world is full of inconsistencies. Unnatural things. Nature's mistakes, they're called. You, for instance. You. Oh, man, that's like a slumber party and a half, isn't it? <laughs> They're all in a bedroom, and they're, like, talking about sisterhood and crazy stuff like this. And Is it made, I mean, you, th there's no question in the book, but it, did you think it, it effectively portrays that? Because I have to say, I didn't quite get it. It does, because, well, there's another another scene where she talks about her little apartment. She says, we, we have this little apartment, and we've worked really hard to, uh, we've worked really hard to decorate it, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, are you married? And she kind of looks away and goes, no. <laughs> so, George, do you, think, do you think possibly this is one of the very, like one of the earlier gay films, do you think? Well, I mean, it's, I one, mean, it's one of the earliest ones. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not the earliest one to, to really have something like that. in, But it's, it's one of the few that, you know, that takes it seriously. Yeah. You know, well, it's obvious. It's very sophisticated. I mean, some, I've seen you know, films in the '30s that have gay characters in them, but they're always an object of ridicule, right? Uh -huh. Or the butt of a joke. So, so just it that, takes an actual, you know, honest human look at. Right. Huh. You know, yeah, I mean, she's not. She's not. She's not evil, and, and she's not. You know, she's not like going after. You know, cornering Eleanor in the bathroom or something like that. But. Uh, but, but I'll tell you what, these girls are high maintenance in this movie. You can yeah. tell, and the, and the ghost is having a good time with them in this thing. He's. He's he's able to push them all over this house and get them all excited. Right, and it, it, it is interesting that really the, the the women are the ones who are most affected by whatever it is in the house. Uh, the best scene for me, anyways, being the scene where um, where Eleanor hears the voices on the other side of the wall and a, a face appears 
Yeah, and they're talking about clothes, and she says, "Good idea to uh, good idea to remain strictly visible around here." So yeah, they're, they're dressing up for the occasion. So, by the way, um, the, uh, the narration on the intro it keeps making reference to eyes. Is this supposed to be the house speaking? Uh, no. Well, who's the narrator? The narrator is is Richard Johnson, who plays Doctor Markaway. Okay. Okay. Um, but that's also taken basically right from the opening lines of the book. So a little documentary, the uh, oh, psychological yeah. horror. Well, let's let's talk about uh, whether or not this has effectively met the criteria of the rules. Does it create the world that it exists in? Uh, I would say so. Yeah, the I mean, house exists, yeah. but they made their own interiors. Just incidentally, <laughs> I did read that. Oh, really? Uh, it's an actual house, but they. <laughs> okay. Well, the house, the exteriors of the house are an a, is an actual house in England, but the interiors are all built on the sound stages. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, its, its own world, man. They walk right into that world. Yeah, and once they're inside, there's nobody else. That's right. So except it certainly people, sustains it. Something that you can't see. So let's consider the. Um... I think that a movie's going to be seen for a long time because you just can't beat a scary house kind of movie. Uh, this is one of the classic scary house movies. Right. And well, and what's interesting, I think, one thing that proves the longevity and popularity of this movie is the fact that they remade it in 1999. And that, oh, that version of it, that version is almost universally loathed. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we, and they, we really know, don't they, have a lot they, of good things to say about the movies that are made after the movies we talk about on our <laughs> list. So welcome. Yeah, this is... you know, and it had, again, the, the new version of The Haunting had, like, you know, uh, um, uh, Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones. I remember oh, that movie. Really? I saw it. I, I saw and, a little bit of The Others. I think, that, what was that movie, The Others, with Nicole Kidman? Oh, right. Um, that yeah. had a little yeah. bit of that tone in it. That um, I, would, I would put almost on the level with The Haunting. It's, it is an incredible It's a really great movie, too. Um, uh, I, I think we have to check our list on that one, The Haunting. Yeah, because, well, I think the thing that really gets me, and for me, anyways, that puts this on our perfect movies list is the fact that it is a film that I find, and that many people find, uh, you know, very frightening without showing you anything. It's all the atmosphere. It's all, as we said, with rubber eyes. It's all in the cutting and the angles and the, the sounds, you know, the little tappings and thumpings and voices and things like that. Which is really speaks to Rule 3. Uh, despite cultural uh, changes, it still retains its entertainment value. If something that's well done transcends the time. So yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there that, are, that really, really like this movie and they stand by it because they are, there are, uh, contrary to what Hollywood wants you to believe, there's a lot of different kind of audiences out there, and some of them like this kind of psychological drama. Right. And for the rest of you, Saw 4 opens next week. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about The Haunting on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO, a movie that is perfect in every way. That, according to our film guys and uh, me, your host. And indeed, it uh, it was an interesting watch, I have to tell you. It, it does require a little bit different kind of discipline in order to uh, to uh, get the full meaning and value. But uh, I have to agree that it's there. Uh, gentlemen, as we wrap up, gentlemen, that hour, half hour flew by. Are we going to give them a little tip of the hand for next time around? Yes, we will, actually. Uh, next week, we are uh, covering a film by one of our big favorite directors, and I think... This is the first of his films that we are doing, uh, The Asphalt Jungle. By John uh, Huston. Ah, 
I got a, had a great chance to see John it, and it's Houston. good. So go out and see it before next week, and we'll all meet you back here. J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to the Coen Brothers and all the big stars. It's Thank always you. my pleasure, Nikki Dakota. And the one and only delightful George Williman, the Library of Congress film nitrate archivist, and our friend George. Thank you. And have a happy Halloween. <laughs> 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 Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website www.perfectmovie.net See you, please.